Okay. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome you to our last night together of working through Ruth and Esther. Um, I do want to start out by saying I know we're ending very differently than how we began, um, but I just want to say I have enjoyed this. It has been an honor to do these two books with you all. Um, and I know we have more great studies ahead for this year, and I'm excited to do those with you as well. So whether, again, we are here together or some of us are here and some of us are home, you all, God can still knit us together as we study his word. And I'm very excited for tonight as we finish up this incredible book. So I am going to read. I actually, in your notes tonight, I combined book um, chapters 9 and 10. We're going to read them all the way through because chapter 10 is actually only three verses. So we'll read it all together and hit it all. If you did not get your notes on time, I'm sorry. That was actually my fault. I did not finish them until about 2.30 today, and I just couldn't stop. I kept adding things. So also to warn you, I did not get them to anyone to proofread. So there might be mistakes in there, so I want to apologize ahead of time if there were. I've had two women throughout this class that have proofread for me, and it's been such a help. And every week they find something, so I'm sure there is going to be something in these notes that I did not catch. So. So know that going in. I'm very sorry. Esther chapter 9. Follow along in your notes or in your own Bible. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Pershandatha and Dalphon, and Espatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eretha, and Parmashta, and Erasai, and Eridai, and Vasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? And it shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, 
If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and get relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a great day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written for them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim after the term pure. Therefore, because all of that was written in the letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, 
as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, again, we are so thankful for this opportunity to meet together and to study your word. Father, I pray that as we open your word, you open our hearts to your word. Father, may we see everything that you have for us tonight in these last two chapters. Lord, may we hear and understand whatever you have for us corporately as well as individually. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these two books in particular of Ruth and Esther and all that you have showed us over these past weeks. And Father, I thank you that everything tonight, everything that is said, Lord, everything we glean from your word, may it all be for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay. So as we start this chapter... We're now in the 12th month of Adar. It's the 13th day. If you remember, this is the day when both edicts went into effect simultaneously. We had Haman's edict. It was that any and all Jews, any and all women and children included, could be killed, destroyed, annihilated, and their property can be seized strictly because they were Jews. We saw that this was actually an act of retaliation. It was totally self-serving on Haman's part. He wanted to enact revenge against the Jewish people in general for what had happened to the Amalekites, as well as seek revenge personally on Mordecai for his refusal to bow to him. At the same day, Mordecai's edict that he was allowed to write also went into effect. And again, though the verbiage seemed very similar, the heart behind it was very different. In Mordecai's edict, Jews could gather together and defend themselves against anyone who came against them, who tried to harm them, or seize their property. This, as we saw last week, is actually an act of retribution. This is a just consequence for a crime. This was going to be the just consequence for anyone who chose to act on Haman's edict. So imagine the beginning of this day. I really can't imagine all these months leading up to this, what life would have been like. I really can't imagine the night before, what people were thinking about, what they were doing. And then this morning, what would have happened? 
So your first connection in red, read Isaiah 13, 9 through 14, 7. I think you're going to see some parallels here in this prophecy of Isaiah and what we have going on in Esther. But we see from this first line in this chapter that what was supposed to happen, you all, with the Persians overtaking the Jews, the exact opposite happened. And we have seen that over and over and over again all throughout this book. This why this why this book is such a book of irony. Everything that is supposed to happen doesn't. In fact, the exact opposite happens, and we see it here again. It was actually the Jewish people who overtook and overcame their attackers. The King James says it this way, and I love it. It says, In the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. So the opportunist that had been emboldened by Haman's decree, hoping to get rich at someone else's expense, had their day, but they didn't have a chance, you all. Their day became their day of judgment. We know, again, all the people that followed this edict. Um, and if you remember, you all, the way Haman did this, it was to actually incite bigotry against this group of people that you could do something to them strictly because of who they were, their nationality, that they were Jews. And because in his edict there was a promise of personal gain, he actually raised an army to do his bidding. But we will see in a minute, anyone who chose to do this actually fell to the Jews. So in verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on them. So no one, no one could stand against them. And this, you all, look, look at this word here. It says the Jews gathered this is why I know the Word of God is absolutely inexhaustible and always applicable. When I did an expository study of Esther about six months ago, this word didn't even catch my attention. And now it would layering foghorn, this idea of gathering. And if we look at that word, and this is the book that I meant to bring last week. For those of you at home, if you're just joining us, Every week or most weeks, I've tried to bring some book to be a Bible study helper to you so that as you become a better student of the Bible, you will have some resources and tools that you need to help you. And this is an incredible one. It is in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. This in the Old, which is Esther, it is the entire, the entire Old Testament with the Hebrew words over it. So you can see it. There's a card to help you with grammar. I'm not going to lie. This one's a little tricky. This one is going to take you some time 
to figure out how to use it, but if you put the time in, it is an incredible resource. The one for the New Testament, which is in Greek, is actually a little easier to navigate, but they are both absolutely wonderful for your libraries. So this word gather, in Hebrew, it is kahal, and it means to assemble or gather together, get together. Their strength and victory seemed to come in their gathering. Again, this week, I just could not get over that, you all. As I'm thinking about the time we are in, (laughs) so different from where we were two weeks ago, which I think is just a wake-up call to everybody that things can change very quickly. We always need to be prepared and ready you all and this is how we prepare for whatever is coming we get into the word of God but right now we're not even supposed to gather in large groups Um, so I just wanted to throw a couple things out here in regards to this word because again their strength their victory came by the fact that they were gathering together so how do we do this today Um, First of all, I would say it is very important that we honor and do the things we are being told to do. I have heard a lot of different things happening, and I truly feel you all. this This is a time where the church can model for the world respect of authority and governmental officials at a time where there's so little respect, so little submission to authority. They are not asking us to do anything illegal at all. So I think we need to show that and model that. What a great model for our own kids whom we want to submit to authority. Um, But even with the rules and mandates and things that have been in pl- put in place. There are so many things, you all, that we can do. Um, gather together as a family. I always hear, we don't have time for dinner anymore. We can't do this together. We can't do this together. Lots of you probably can now. Um, gather together with your family. You can come out on the other side of this much stronger. And again, we need to be strong family units for whatever is coming. Um, Secondly, you all, because we're not supposed to even be out that much and so many things are closed, maybe meet your neighbors if you haven't met them. Some of us are surrounded by people we don't even know. I, I walk a lot and I'm always, because I work from home, I walk at different times. When most people are at work, I very rarely see anybody. I am seeing new people every single day who are hungry for conversation and none of them are in a hurry to get anywhere. So I'm having 10-minute conversations with strangers on the street. And you all, these are just opportunities to start relationships and to sprinkle some truth because we are women of the truth and we can put truth into every conversation we have. Um, And finally, Think about starting a group. You can still meet in groups up to 10. Have a group at your house. Start a Bible study. If you're not comfortable with having people over during this time, maybe do one on Facebook or um, FaceTime. Um, I know friends that are doing that. 
So still taking opportunities to get together for prayer, for study. You all, I believe this is actually an incredible opportunity we've been given if we take advantage of it. Um, at the same time, I do want to say there are people that the exact opposite right now is happening to them. Um, anybody in the healthcare field, you all, they're not even getting a day off right now. So one of the things you can do with our extra time is to pray for those who have no time and to lift them up and to check on them and to see if any, there's anything that they need and to show them appreciation for what's going on right now. I feel like the exact opposite has happened where some people have been given huge amounts of time and some every bit they have has been taken away. So let's be mindful of people in both situations. Um, but anyway, the importance, you all, is to gather, to still find ways to gather just as they did. Because of this gathering, it says no one could stand against them, not even one. Is it possible that not one attempt of the enemy was successful? It says no one because the fear of them had fallen. As the Jews assembled you all in various cities throughout the empire, the Gentiles became afraid of them. As they saw them gathering together, knowing they were going to fight together, I believe a lot of people didn't even try on that day. We're going to see some did, but I believe that fear that we're seeing right here held some of the battle even at bay. Didn't even try. So this word fear, Hebrew, it is pakad. It means terror, great terror or dread. It's the same word we saw last week at the end of the chapter where it said that because of fear of the Jews after Mordecai's edict went out, because people feared what could happen, many of them declared themselves Jews. And that word declared meant they actually became Jews. Okay? And I asked you to think about this idea, you all. And I know for some it was shocking if you hear it the first time. The idea of fear actually being a catalyst that can be used to share the gospel to show people the truth of the scripture. And you all, I used to struggle with this because I always thought, well, we can't talk about certain things. We don't want to scare anybody into the kingdom. We can't talk about hell. We can't talk about judgment. Those things are too harsh. They're too hard. Uh, people aren't going to want to love or serve a God like that. Isn't it the kindness of God that brings people to repentance? It's in Romans, Romans, um, where is it in Romans? Romans 2, 4, the kindness of God brings you to repentance. Now, here's an example, you all, of what I'm just going to call taking scriptures, one little scripture without viewing it in context. Okay, that very same verse. If you read Romans 12, 3, it's actually talking about judgment and the verse after that, Romans 12, 5, is talking about wrath. 
and that people are actually storing up wrath against themselves to be poured out on the day of judgment. So when I think of that, you all, and I think of loved ones that I know that are not saved, and I know what this says happens to the unsaved. And you all, do we believe this? Do we believe that if a person is unsaved, that they will go to hell like this word says? If we do, I would just ask, is it the kind, loving thing to tell them, to give them the truth, to have an opportunity based on all the facts to turn, to repent, and to be saved? Or is it the kind, loving thing to try to spare their feelings, not offend them, and hope something good happens for them later? I know this can be a tough thing to think through, you all, and I would just ask that you think through it. Um, Do word studies on the wrath of God. Do some word studies on hell. If you really get a hold of it, oh, you all, it will prompt you to share the word and the truth of God. It will. It will. Verse 3. All the officials of the provinces and all the sad traps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So again, we see a fear happening here that the people, the common people, were scared of these armies of Jews that had gathered together. And then the governing officials in the land actually feared Mordecai. They didn't want to do anything against him. He had been in power now for about seven months, and we know he had become greater and greater, so no one wanted to go against him. So they fought on the sides of the Jews. Now, with these two examples, I don't see that these people were turned and that they became Jews, but I do believe it at least stopped them from doing something that would have cost them their life, okay? Verse 4, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame had spread throughout all the provinces. And the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. You all, their weapon was the sword. So is ours. So is ours. This is our sword. Um, For a connection here, I just wanted to remind you, and ladies, I know we did this study together very recently. Such a great study on the armor of God. If you have not been involved in one, I would suggest you study out the armor of God. Um, It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual wicked 
spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit with which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. As you study through this this week, going through each piece, you all, I would just commend you to look at every single piece and exactly what it means and what it symbolizes. Today, I'm only going to hit the shield because I think this is very important for this particular story. But these shields, you all, were huge pieces of armor, okay? They were soaked in water so that when a dart that was caught on fire was shot, as soon as it hit the shield, it would be extinguished. You all, we are to be so soaked in the Word of God. You all, not everything should be a battle for us. If we are soaked in the Word, some things are going to come at us and it will extinguish. Okay? You all, if every single thing in your life is a battle, then we need to strengthen our faith in the God that we trust, okay? Some darts, some darts will cause a battle, okay? Some will, but they all don't have to. It's dependent on how soaked we are. Next, these shields, you all, were engineered where the edges of them were almost like tongue and groove. So these shields could be locked together So if you imagine people literally gathering together, locking their shield, it became a fortress for anyone assembled inside of it. How beautiful that is. So protection for an individual, greater protection when people gathered together as a group. So for your application this week, you all, again, look through the armor of God. If you recently did the study with us, just review it. Um, Look through the pieces. Think about which uh, pieces were offensive, which were defensive. There, There is a lot to glean from these few verses in Ephesians. So again, we hear that all of their enemies fell. Just like in verse 2 where it said no one. Y'all, I do not believe these are exaggerations. I do not believe this is hyperbole. I take the word of God literally. And if that's what it says, that's what I believe. I don't believe anyone was successful on that day in their attack against the Jews. In the city of Citadel of Susa itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. 
So this day, the 13th day of the 12th month, you all, it, it is actually a day marked on the calendar. This was March of 473 B.C., um, where the Jews killed 500 people in the capital city alone. Verse 7, and also killed, here we go again, <laughs> Parshandatha, Delphon, Espatha, Poratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Pemashta, Erisai, Eridai. The, number 10 here, hit, this son's name was different in various places where I looked it up. I, I wrote the one here. The one I have in your notes is the ESV. Um, here, I used the one that came out of this book that I've showed you many times of what these Jewish names mean. But what I want you to see here, you all, is the way these names are written in original Hebrew, it's very interesting, okay? The, they're written in a column, like you see here in your notes, and each one of them is linked to another word that means self. And the use of this pronoun in the specific place where it is put denotes emphasis of this name. So if we take the meaning of this name, like if you look at the first one, Parshandatha, it would mean curious self, okay, which is showing the characteristic of a busybody. Okay? Dalphon, weeping self, which can show self-pity. Eshpatha, assembled self, self-mobilized or self-sufficiency. I'm not going to go through them all. I'm just going to read the characteristics, but listen to these characteristics. Self-indulgent or impulsive. Self-conscious or having inferiority. Assertive, insistence upon one's own way. A desire for preeminence over others. Imprudence, pride, haughtiness, superiority, and self-righteousness. What a list of names. What a list of names. Now, here's what I would say to this. We know these were actually sons of Haman, his actual ten sons. We know that they were killed the day of this battle. Okay? A couple of things here. If you remember, Saul, and this is in a previous lesson, um, if you need to go back to it, Saul was told at one point to kill all the Amalekites in disobedience. He did not. He spared the king, and um, that king that he spared, okay, and some other people that got away became, they were the ancestors of Haman. We had Haman because of Saul's disobedience. So, so these sons were Amalekites. They were enemies of the Jews, okay? So they are now here, finally hung and destroyed, okay? I think that these names shown this way, you all, is actually typological of showing the need for the death of self. Think of all of these things represented here. And there's a list of verses here for you. There's probably 10 or 12 in your connections to look 
at what the Bible teaches us about our death to ourselves. Okay? And also, I think an important thing to bring up here, you all, is, and I don't know if it's in the notes here or later, but if these ten sons were killed, we know that these ten sons were attacking the Jews. Because the only reason a Jew was allowed to kill someone that day was because they were being attacked. So think through this. Their father had just months before been found out and hung on the gallows for his crime. And yet his ten boys are doing the same thing the father wanted to do, wanted done, attacking the Jews. You all, we are always teaching our children, always. Unfortunately, these sons learned the wrong thing from their father. They learned bitterness, anger, hatred, violence, and they did the exact thing their father did and paid the exact same price. They too would be hanged. So verse 13, or verse 11, I'm sorry. That very number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. He told that to Esther, saying that there were 500, wondering how many had been killed in all the other provinces, and then again asks her what her wish is, and it would be granted. So this, this very day, this same horrible day of the enactment of both of these edicts, and she says, if it please the king, let the Jews in Susa be allowed to do according to this day's edict. So what that implies, you all, is there were still people in the city wanting to enact Haman's edict. So she was saying for her wish, if they're going to continue this tomorrow, let the Jewish people be allowed to still gather and assemble and protect and defend themselves. So that was granted to her. And then she also said... And let the sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now, this is interesting, you all, because they were already killed. So why hang them on the gallows? And if you remember from an earlier lesson, this gallows is not what we picture in our vernacular. It's not a hangman's noose. You all, this was actually a stake for impalement. It was considered a shameful way to die. It was also very torturous, but obviously these guys were dead. But it would still bring shame upon their name and upon their family. Because this was a practice back then, really setting an example, showing what these people did to bring about this is the same thing that's going to happen to you if you follow it. So that is why that she asked that they be hung. So the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So again, um, we see a number for the amount of Persians killed, 
And then it talks about in the provinces, 75,000 people were killed who had hated them but laid no hand on the plunder. So two interesting things here, you all. Again, very specific numbers here that are given for the Persians. No numbers are given for the Jews. Again, could that mean that there weren't any? Could God do something like that? (laughs) Could he literally save every single Jew? And the only people killed that day were the Persians? That's amazing. That's amazing to me. Um, And for the third time, we see here, it says they laid no hand on the plunder or spoil of their enemies. Now, again, the same story of the Amalekites that I just briefly mentioned, that was Saul's other act of disobedience. He took spoil. He was, he was not supposed to take anything, and he did, and his disobedience cost him his kingdom. Okay? So first off, I think we see the Jewish people, okay, not wanting any part of that. But the difference is Saul had been told not to. According to the edict, the Jews actually could. They could take the spoil. So this is only my opinion, but it just makes me think, you all, there, there's a lot of things that we are allowed to do. It doesn't mean it's the best thing for us. Okay, and I would say, and this is in your connection here, you all, and I have a verse. Um, let me read the verse first, and I'll get to the connection. First John 2, 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In your connection, you all have a lot of verses for you to dig into this week concerning where should we be building our treasure? I want to throw out you all, we should not be trying to collect the spoil of this world. What we have is much more valuable than anything this world can give us. Any plunder of this world is worthless. We need to get our eyes on the right thing. We need to be storing up treasure that is eternal, not things that must rust and moths will destroy so many verses you all for you to dig through there let's be women who set our eyes you all on the things of God not the things of this world so 17 actually verses 16 through 19 all of this you all actually begins to lay out what is going to be known as the celebration of Purim, 
and why it falls on certain days. The 13th day of the month of Adar, the 14th day is when they rested. Um, but it talks about um, there being fighting different days depending on if someone was in the city or in the provinces, okay? And Mordecai is going to lay all of this out in his edict regarding this particular celebration. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 20. It says, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. And they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending food and gifts to one another and gifts to the poor. Um, Psalms 30, 11 says, Thou hast turned my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. This is exactly what happened to the Jewish people in these days with their victory. So we see that he recorded all of these things, and you all, this became known as the Festival of Purim, which is still celebrated today. It actually, I believe, was just a few weeks ago. Um, on, well, we'll get to that in, in a minute. So the Jews accepted what had been laid out for them to do. Um, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure to crush and destroy them. That's the first time we heard this word. That word, yes, that word crush. Um, Haman always used three words. He wanted to kill, destroy, annihilate over and over and over. Three words. This is the first time we see this word that he wanted to crush them so it just made me look it up because again is the first time it popped up in this in this book and when I did look at the spelling of that word it almost made me laugh the spelling of crush is hamam h-a-m-a-m to destroy to break to consume or to vex Probably just accidental, but I just think that is interesting. Um, so 25, but when it came before the king, if you remember, when he found out about this edict, when this whole matter came before him, he did what needed to be done. He allowed Mordecai to write his own edict. Um, he allowed the Jews to gather together to defend themselves, to even attack when being attacked. And then he hung the sons, Haman and his sons, on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and all that they had faced in this matter and all that had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offsprings and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these days according to what was written at the appointed time every year that these days should be remembered 
and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. You all, we, we are going to hit this in a minute, but I cannot stress enough the importance of Jewish feasts and holidays. They were very, very important. And people were obligated to keep them, to follow them, to participate in them, to commemorate things God had done. We're going to hit those in a minute. But that's why you all, the, almost the rest of this chapter, it keeps saying that over and over and over. These are the days. This is what you do. You're obligated to do this. The people obligated themselves. Okay, why is it repeated, I think, four different times? Because that's how important these Jewish festivals and feasts are. So, let's skip down here. It says um, they were to be observed at their appointed seasons. Um, they were obligated to do this, you all. Um, they obligated themselves to do this. I think the one phrase in here is interesting. It says that, let me find it. Um, in 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves, their offspring, and all who joined them. Remember the people that joined them last chapter? actually became Jewish. You all, this was open to them as well. This was open to them as well. Okay? <laughs> this is how people came into knowing God back then. Okay? Through the Jews. Today, you all, and, and this was open, this was open to not only the Jews, but anyone who joined them, this salvation, okay, that happened for them that day. Same as today, you all, salvation is open to any and all who accept it, anyone and all. So they took this time of celebration seriously. It talks about their times of fasting and their time they were supposed to remember both, you all, both. And they were continue to teach all of this to their offspring so that it would never be forgotten. It was actually in what he wrote for this celebration to never fall into disuse. Okay? It still should be practiced today. Now, I've got a little blurb in here for you of what is Purim, and this is sort of how Purim is celebrated today. It's kind of lost some of its power, okay? Today, they equate it almost to Halloween, which is very, very unfortunate. It is a big party. This is for some people, not all, but some see it as more of a Halloween party where they dress up, different things, because 
for many, for it, it has been tradition for people to dress up as one of these characters. On Purim, the entire book of Esther is read, okay? And people cheer whenever you hear the name Esther or Mordecai. And whenever the name Haman is spoken, everybody is to yell out boo, okay? Or to stomp their feet or to um, shake rattles or something. And the whole idea is to blot out his name so it is not heard, okay? So pretty interesting. Um, they pass around cookies shaped as triangles, um, all, all sorts of things. But I want you to keep this in mind that this is how Purim is celebrated, okay? Because later uh, we're going to do a connection to see what some of these festivals really mean and all that is put in them. So. So put that aside for just a minute. But I do have a website there for you that has been so helpful for me. It's called bimbam.com. And any question you have about Judaism, you can find it on this site. Okay, it's very helpful. Um, lots of pictures. There's little um, movies you can watch on different things. Been very helpful to me. So it ends with saying that they were to continue to pass this on to all of their descendants. And you all, we talked about this from the very beginning of our time together. What happens when parents do not pass on to their children what God has done? We saw it in the Exodus when we were studying Ruth. We saw it in the days of Judges. We have seen it over and over and over again throughout both of these books, what happens. We are to teach our children the ways of God. We are to teach our children to know him. We are to teach them what he has done. We are to teach them the word. As parents, that is our primary responsibility to our children. So this is your last Bible study tip, and it is to actually study all the Jewish festivals and feasts. And here's why. Each feast itself, you all, is a prophetic type or example of what Christ himself will fulfill. The things involved in the feast pertain to the natural, but they point to the spiritual. Every feast is an example of 1 Corinthians 15, 46 through 47. Listen to what this verse says. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. What we're going to do, I'm going to walk you through one of the feasts. And again, you all, there's no specific way you have to do this. It's just how I do it. You do it however you want, but these are kind of the steps I look at when looking at the feast, okay? And I would highly suggest for this to get a book on the feast because there is a lot to each one. And what I'm about to show you all, this came from resources like this, okay? Some of this you can see pretty easy. Some of these details I would have never found without a book like this. Um, so let's take Passover because it's probably the one you're most familiar with. So in Passover, you all, we had a real 
lamb, an actual lamb, was first. But it points, of course, to the spiritual lamb of God. So the historical event that brought about Passover, we find in Exodus 12. And you know the story. Moses was given very specific instructions concerning the means by which God would deliver his people from bondage. So Moses went around, you all, telling the people this. He was preaching what they had to do to be saved. Anyone could participate in that. Again, Jew or Egyptian. If an Egyptian did what Moses said, the angel would have passed over their household as well. Think about that. That is incredible, beautiful mercy of God. So the steps. Each household was to take a lamb on the 10th day, set it aside, and sacrifice it on the 14th day. They were to sprinkle its blood on the lintel and the two side posts of the house, of the door. The household itself was then to partake of the sacrificed lamb. They were to eat quickly, be dressed, and ready to go at the time of their deliverance. At midnight, the angel of death passed through the land. Any home where the blood was sprinkled on the lintel and doorpost was passed over. So, as you go through these, look for just interesting words, anything that pops out to you. You know, this word, Passover, actually it comes from two Hebrew words. It, pakash al, it means to pass over, but also to hover over. To pass over and yet hover over. So think about what this angel is doing. Passing over judgment, but it seems to hover with divine protection. You all both happening at the same time. I think judgment and mercy are linked. <laughs> we see it over and over again. So what does this mean for us today? Well, obviously, just like Moses, when someone hears the gospel message, Jew or Gentile, they can accept it or reject it. The choice is theirs. The spotless lamb, obviously, was sacrificed. Jesus, as our spotless lamb, was sacrificed so that we could be passed over concerning God's judgment. Finally, as you look through these feasts, you all, know that every single detail is important. Passover in this book is pages and pages long because every single detail means something. Okay, I'm, I'm just bringing out one that I found fascinating. Moses tells the people, this month shall be for you the beginning of the months. So we know that that is the month of Nisan, the first month. There's your calendar there. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month 
Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, this, this is why you need a book like this, because it, you got to go through a lot of verses to get here. Okay, but Jesus entered Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan and was crucified four days later. That is, <laughs> that is amazing, <laughs> amazing, the detail of the scripture. Again, you all, every detail in here is important. Every detail, I believe, is worth digging into and studying out because it means something. Um, and the feasts are an incredible way to see marvelous typology that points to Jesus. So for a connection, I have the feast listed for you here. There's a Jewish calendar when these feasts take place. Um, the only one that is in the list that is not actually on your diagram here is the Feast of First Fruits, and that's because it, it takes place at the same time as Passover. Okay, so it would be right there in Nisan as well. But there's actually seven feasts according to Mosaic Law. We've studied the number seven a lot in here. That is a very important number. And there's two feasts that are post-Mosaic Law, which is, of course, the Feast of Purim, as well as the Feast of Benediction or Dedication, which is also Hanukkah. So study those out. And then as an application, it is said, you all, that all seven of these holy days are actually built into the festival of Purim. Remember, this one came much later than when these first seven were put into law. So there's a chart for you with just a brief little summary of each one. And just do a little work, do a little digging, and see if you can find each of these things that brought about this celebration of Purim. Not how it's celebrated today, but the story that brought this festival into existence. So that is the end of chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, we see at the beginning that the king imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. If you remember, when the king first married Esther, he took away the tax. Now it looks like it's being implemented or reinstated again. Some studies say, I read this in at least one place, but not very many, so I'm not sure if this is true, but some people think that this was possibly a new system of taxation that was engineered by Mordecai to do away with war and plunder. Okay? Not sure, but that was thrown out as an idea. So we know, again, that this tax went into his entire kingdom. We have the map in our workbooks that show just how big the Persian Empire was at this time. 127 provinces altogether. A hundred of those were on the mainland. 27 were actually on islands. Um, so this would have been, again, quite the undertaking to impose a new system in this empire. 
verse 2, all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So all these acts um, were written down. We've seen this before. This was the book that the night the king couldn't sleep, he asked to be read from so that he could fall asleep. What hit me this time as I was reading this, Mordecai was a powerful man, powerful man, honorable, mighty, influential, and yet it says all his acts could be recorded. Everyone turn to John 21, 25. Mordecai, obviously, the one who helps bring salvation to the Jewish people in this story. All of his works, as powerful and mighty as he is, can be written. And yet of our Savior, look what this says, John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Everything that we have in here about Jesus, both Old and New Testament, it is nothing compared to everything he actually did, he actually accomplished. Um, verse 3. Last verse of the book. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. God did not leave himself without representation, you all, in a heathen empire. I would say that what Mordecai was to Persia Joseph was to Egypt, Daniel was to Babylon. In America here, I have a question mark. I would just have you think, who do we have here? Who do we have here? Has God given us someone to play these parts that we see have been played throughout history? The middle of a heathen empire and a godly leader doing something about it. It says he sought the welfare of his people um, and spoke peace to all his people. So in stark contrast to Haman seeking destruction and demise, we see Mordecai actually seeking the welfare of his people. You all, he was set at this point. He was the second most important person in the empire. Could he have just sat back and rested? Rested in that fact, not done anything. He could have, you all. He chose 
to use his position to seek the welfare of his people and to speak peace to all his people. Again, so timely, so timely. Let's pray for leaders who actually seek the welfare of the people they govern. Let's pray for people who speak peace over the people. Um, what, what a way to end this book. What a way. Mordecai, now second in charge, bringing peace and security and rest to, his, to this kingdom. Now, I told you that we would end with typology of this book, and I'm so excited about this. A um, couple things before I start on this. Again, if you are not familiar with what typology is, I have a brief um, intro here, but we've also hit it multiple times throughout this study. And again, if you're joining tonight or last week for the first time and things aren't connecting for you, every lesson that we have done together is actually on the church website that you can listen to them. They're not audio, they're not video, only the last two are video, but all the other nine are audio where you can listen to them and you can actually download the notes. There's over 100 pages of notes altogether. Who knew there would end up being that many? Um, but thank you, church, for letting us copy that. So typology simply means that a biblical type is a person, place, or event in the Old Testament that has its own proper significance. That's very important. But it also prefigures another person, place, or event that is yet to come. Typology does not mean that this is all allegorical, okay? These things that we just studied in Ruth and Esther really happened. These were real people at specific places and times in history that God used to bring about his purposes and his plan. They have much significance, which I hope you've seen throughout this, on their own. Without typology, we can learn so much from these two women and these two books, okay? All typology means is that along with these being real events and real people, they can foreshadow something yet future. And this is what we're going to be digging into for our last few minutes here because this book is steeped in typology, okay? And as we begin, I want to take you very quickly back to our very first night together because I told you there were two reasons that we were going to start this year reading the books of Ruth and Esther together. First of all, it was simply that they were Old Testament books, and we think it is important to know, be familiar with, study the Old Testament, especially today, especially today in a time where many churches, not our church, not this local body, but many churches and prominent Bible teachers are saying you don't need the Old Testament anymore, that we are New Testament believers, and, and the word there is we can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament where God appears 
wrathful and mean and all sorts of stories that are hard to understand. So let's just not worry about that and focus only on the new. That, that is false teaching. That is false teaching. Paul tells us we need the full counsel of God that is beginning to end. I believe we need beginning to end in every detail in the middle. Um, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he took his disciples and he said, I'm going to show you that the whole volume of this book speaks of me. What was he talking about? The Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. It was the Old. So Jesus himself. <laughs> okay, y'all, we need the Old Testament. In fact, your knowledge of the Old Testament was so in and enlighten your study of the New Testament. And I'm so excited that after these two Old Testament books, we are going to do a New Testament letter. And I just believe, I can't say this for sure, but I believe we're going to see some connections. Because I believe all the books of the Bible are connected. Again, I can't prove it, but I'm coming across this idea that if you spent enough time in every book, would it not take you to every other book? I kind of think it might. Um, so I'm so excited to do that next. But we studied these two books because we wanted to study the Old Testament, but also because it's the two books in the Bible named after women. Okay, 66 books, two named after women. Okay, I even think that is significant. And here's why. As we have gone through our study, and again, hopefully you have learned new ways to study the Bible yourself. One of those ways, uh, ways I've talked to you about is just simple word studies. You look up a word, you see when it's first mentioned, how many times is it mentioned, um, law of first mention, all, all sorts of things. We saw that when in the writing of the scripture, if a word or an idea is used over and over and over multiple times repeated, we know that that means this is something important, okay? God is giving multiple chances saying, hey, don't miss this. Don't miss this one. I'm going to put it in again, and I'm going to put it in again, and I'm going to put it in again. And at the same time, when there is a word or an idea that's not mentioned many times, maybe once or twice, it shows specialness or significance. So here we have 66 books and two are named for women. I would say it's not because they're not important. I would say it's because they are so significant in what they represent. You all, we saw in Ruth, in the typology of Ruth, Ruth was the church. <laughs> that entire story was the story of redemption. Her personal redemption, but our redemption as believers in Jesus Christ. It was Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. So Ruth, a picture of the church, the bride of Christ, and Esther... I believe, is typological of Israel. God's beloved, his chosen people. 
the nation, the only nation with which God has made an everlasting covenant, a covenant that is still in effect today. So let's dig in a little bit and see what all might be under the surface of this book. So let's look at Esther first again. The nation of Israel, I believe. And before I start this, let me say this again, and I know I've said it the first night. I know I've said it multiple times throughout. Um, what I'm about to do, you all, a lot of this is my opinion. I wanted to do tonight as discussion, and we can't really do that now, so I actually just have listed for you all the things that I see. And you need to know, not everybody agrees with this list. Not everybody sees these same things, same things. Some people don't even ever look at things like this, okay? So I'm going to ask the same thing I've been asking all throughout. Don't accept this just because I say it. You all, just like Paul told the believers in Berea, he, he said they were more noble than the believers in Thessalonica because every night, they took what Paul had said and went home and examined it um, against the word. And that's what we all need to be doing. Y'all, I am so very thankful for good teachers, preachers, and pastors that we can learn from. But that is our job as a believer. We are not to blindly accept. We are to hear from people that have been proven trustworthy and yet we are still to take what they tell us and examine it to the word. Okay, we are all to study to show ourselves approved. This entire class, you all, was hopefully giving you a little toolbox of how to better study the Bible for yourself. We all need to be doing this. So especially when I'm about to go into waters like typology, keep that in mind. Take it and then look at it for yourself and see what you come up with. So... For Esther, again, I believe it's the nation of Israel. First of all, she is a Jewish woman, and we know God called the Jewish people his. Um, some people put Esther up to be the bride of Christ or the church. Um, nowhere else in the Bible do I ever see Israel being compared or being shown as a Gentile. All, always Jewish, and Esther is, of course, Jewish. Um, she was displaced from her home in Jerusalem. I think this is a picture of the diaspora, you all, where the Jews were displaced all over the world. She was chosen by the king and set above all other women. What did God do with the nation of Israel? his chosen people and set them above every other nation and actually uses that standard as a blessing for anyone else who chooses to bless them. How amazing. Um, Esther was saved from a diabolical plot to destroy her and all her people. The nation of Israel <laughs> has survived multiple attempts to destroy them. And there is at least one more coming, and we know that is the Great Tribulation, where there is a plot of Satan's for the last time to destroy the Jewish people. 
Esther turns to the king for help and deliverance. You all, during this time of the Great Tribulation, the Jews will turn back to their king. Their eyes will be opened. They will turn back, and they will be saved and delivered. Um, next, let's look at Vashti. I believe, and I can't find a lot of people who believe this, <laughs> but I believe she's representative um, foreshadowing the church at this time in history. We don't see a lot of her here, you all, because I believe this entire book is typological of the Great Tribulation. Okay? I've told you this before. I am absolutely a pre-tribulation rapture believer. Um, it says in um, First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, we were not destined for the day of wrath. You are the great tribulation. It is called the day of Jacob's trouble, the day of wrath of the Lord. I do not believe the church was destined for that. I believe the rapture will happen before. And in Vashti, what do we see? She was taken before this plot unfolded. She, she was taken and yet saved. She didn't deserve her salvation, neither do we. It was a gift of the king for some reason. She disobeyed the king. She should have been killed. She was not. Her life was spared, okay? But in this story, she was taken and saved at the same time. And then we never hear of her again. If you study out the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 3 is all about the church. Okay, when you get to chapter four, you are in the throne room of God. Okay, and after that begins the breaking of the scrolls, which is the releasing of the wrath of God on the earth. You all, that is the great tribulation. After um, chapter three, the church isn't mentioned again. The church isn't mentioned again. There's a lot of different things in there that I can't get into right now why I believe you see a picture of the church in the throne room of God in chapter 4, but dig into that yourself. Dig into that yourself. It is beautiful. But she was taken, and after she was taken, Haman comes into power. Okay? Same thing that we see on at the Great Tribulation. Um, he does not come to power until she is gone. And in, oh, I misquoted that verse that I just said. This is the Second Thessalonians verse. Um, in Thessalonians, it tells us that the Antichrist does not get revealed until after the rapture of the church. Okay. So Vasti is taken and Haman comes to power. I believe, again, that's what happened. It says in Second Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. 
whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You all, that's another word worth doing a word study on. Who is the restrainer that is being talked about here? Dig into that because that restrainer gets removed before the Antichrist comes on the scene. Next, Haman seems to rise out of nowhere and appears to rule the empire for the time. The Antichrist will rise quickly and he will appear to rule for a time. When Haman was in power, the empire was thrown into confusion and chaos. The time of the tribulation will be a time of great confusion and chaos. Haman has ten sons. The Antichrist rules over ten kings. All of Haman's sons were destroyed. The same fate awaits those ten kings. Haman demands that people pay homage to him by bowing. The Antichrist demands people show their allegiance to him by taking his mark. Haman's plan was to totally annihilate the Jewish people. You all, that is, again, the plan of the Antichrist. Haman, second to the king in the empire, had his authority stripped and given to Mordecai. Satan, the prince of this world, as he is called right now, will also have his authority stripped once and for all, once and for all. Haman's time and power is short-lived. The time of the Antichrist is also purposefully short. Matthew 24, 22 says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. That is very sobering, you all. Seven years of a horrendous time because the wrath of God will be poured out on the world. Haman, or the Antichrist, looks like he's in control of it, you all, but he is not. He is not. Haman thought he was in control, but the control was always the king's. Okay? The king could give his authority through giving that ring and he could take it away and he did so. Okay? Now I'm not saying in every instance throughout this book that the king is typological of God because we know this king did some very questionable things. And you all, all typology breaks down at some point because it's not the real. Okay? It's not the real. But I would say in this instance, we can see what is happening here. The king gave authority, and the king took it back. Okay? Satan has authority on this earth that will be taken from him. It is not full authority, you all. Of course, nowhere close but he is still allowed to do a lot of things. So was Haman. But at one point, that all comes to an end. Okay? And it comes to an end because his authority is taken. And it is given to the rightful king. 
Haman's judgment of the king, no, Haman's judgment by the king was a public spectacle. God will also make the judgment of Satan a public spectacle. It says in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, open shame by triumphing over them. Remember that that gallows, <laughs> that was the whole point of death by gallows to be um, shameful. Haman thought that the gallows would be the end of Mordecai, but it was his own end. You all, Satan thought the cross would be the end of Jesus. And it sealed his end. It brought our salvation, but it sealed his end. At that point, it was finished. Haman was killed. Um, I put this one in my notes, but I don't believe it is in yours because, um, because I haven't tracked it down to make sure it's true yet. But I read Haman was killed on Nisan 17. Judas hung himself. On Nisan 17. I think that is another incredible detail. So, Esther, Vasti, Haman. Now let's look at Mordecai. I believe, again, he seems to be a picture of Christ. Um, you all, Haman wasn't satisfied, if you remember, to go after Mordecai alone. He also wanted all of his people. Isn't that our enemy? He wants all, all of us, any follower of Jesus. Um, the power and authority, the king's signet ring that Haman appears to have for a while is given to Mordecai forever. Now, of course, we know Mordecai died, but in the book, in the typology, we never see it being taken back. You all, the reign of Jesus is forever. Mordecai's rule ushered in a time of peace, joy, and rest. Christ will usher in at his return the millennial reign, which is a time of peace, joy, and rest. And the last line of the book of Esther says, Mordecai speaks peace to all his people, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Last thing I want to look at is timing, you all. There's so many timing issues in this book that I also believe point to something, um, point to something more. This horrendous time for the Jews caused Esther to turn to the king for help. It was actually the horrible time the horrible things happening that made her go to the king. Well, that is the purpose of the tribulation. It is a horrible time, but the purpose is to bring Israel back to God because we know that when, when they did not accept Jesus, it says that their eyes would be closed for a while. Okay, we are living in that time now, but their eyes will be opened again. 
okay? And at that point, um, the three and a half year mark of the great tribulation, their eyes are opened again and they call to their Messiah. The time frame in Esther is short and specific. You all, we have so many markers all throughout Esther to give us very specific timing. If you remember in Ruth, there was, everything was very vague. No specific time. And I just think it's because salvation's always open. Our redemption can be any day. Okay? These things happened at very specific times time points and you all the tribulation has very specific time points we don't know when it's going to happen okay we don't know when these things start but we know the events that lead up to them we do know the starting point with the acceptance of a treaty we do know the three and a half year point when the antichrist does the abomination of desolation Okay, there are very specific things mentioned in the tribulation, just like in Esther. And I know I'm throwing some things out there that um, you may or may not be familiar with. I, I hope, if nothing else, it stirs your interest to maybe dig into some of these ideas and look into Revelation for yourself. Um, once Haman came into power, things began to move very quickly. We talked about this several times throughout this book. In Revelation 1.1, you all, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. That word shortly there in Greek is intakos. It means in rapid succession. It doesn't mean they're going to happen tomorrow, shortly. It means once things are in place, once they start, things move quickly. And that is ac absolutely what we saw through the book of Esther. Um, during Esther's time, we know many Jews, because of fear, okay, came into the kingdom. You all, Revelation talks of many tribulation saints. I believe the same thing. It is going to be an awful time and people that have refused to accept Jesus will have their eyes opened and come to him as Savior. Um, and finally, you all, some believe that Purim actually is a foreshadowing lineal reign itself. And I think when you dig into that festival and everything in it, you might begin to see that. Um, oh, my goodness. I know it's almost time to go. So I'm going to say this. If you need to go, you can go. If you want to stay for the last little bit, you're welcome to stay. And if anybody stays, I'll keep going. Um, Alan, can I have a couple more minutes? Okay. No kid. I know. Nobody to pick up tonight. Okay. So God's name, as we saw you all, is never in the book of Esther. On the surface, it appears that he's uninvolved in the plight of his people here. And again, you all, I believe at the time of the Great Tribulation, y'all, it's going to look like God has removed his hand. It will be awful, but he has not. He is orchestrating every 
single detail of that time period to bring about his purpose, which is what? The salvation of Israel and the salvation of anyone else, <laughs> anyone else that chooses it during that time. So, though his name is not seen in the book, you all, his name, the name of God, is actually hidden away at least eight times throughout the book of Esther in acrostic form. If you are familiar with an acrostic poem, it just means that the beginning of each line starts with a letter that creates a word. Okay? And some more examples of this in the word, you all. Proverbs 31, that poem of the worthy woman, all 22 lines, you all, each line of Proverbs 31 begins in succession with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Word of God, which is about the Word of God. I find that interesting. You all, the, in, Psalm 119 is divided into 22 sections. There are eight lines in each of the 22 sections. Okay? Again, each of the 22 sections, all eight lines show a succession of the Hebrew alphabet. The first section, all eight lines begin with the first letter of the alphabet. The 22nd section, all eight lines begin with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Again, ladies, I think this shows the fingerprint of God all over this word. Could people do that one? They could. They could do an acrostic poem like that. I would say it would be very difficult to have such meaning at the same time. So those are examples of acrostic poems throughout the word and the name of God, different forms of the name of God have been found throughout the book of Esther at least eight times. Um, and then last, here's what I want to end with. Going back to Esther 4.14, because we did talk about it in that particular lesson, which would have been lesson four of this book. But you all, this is the most quoted, of course, verse in this book. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. You all, th this line was the pivotal point in the story of Esther. Okay? I believe understanding of this can be a pivotal point in our own lives. There are two words in Greek for the word time. One is chronos or chronos. One is kairos. Chronos, in your notes, you can see this refers to sequential time. It's time on a clock or time on a calendar. It's where we get the English word chronology. Um, it is linear time. It is always moving forward, okay? And it encompasses past, present, future. Kairos refers to the opportune time. Chronos is quantitative. It means it can be counted, but kairos is qualitative, okay? It captures moments 
it is the appointed time for an event or a critical moment of time. So when, es when Mordecai is telling Esther, who knows if you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this, what do you think he's referring to here? Kairos, if not both, possibly both. And here's what I would say, you all, to all of us. God, of course, knows our chronological time on this earth. He knows when we were going to be born. It says in Psalms, he knows the number of our days even before the first one came to pass. He knows our chronological time here. Okay? I also believe... He has a kairos time for all of us. I don't think it's an accident that our chronological time happens to be this time. I think this is for some reason our opportune time. Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing with the time we've been given. And if you remember, Esther had a choice when Mordecai presented her with this and said, this is what I want you to do. Um, and he said, if you don't, if you don't, someone else, God will rise someone else up to do it. Again, ladies, I think he's given each and every one of us a specific plan and purpose to be fulfilled. Just like Esther, it wasn't forced on her. It wasn't forced on her. She chose that moment to act. I would throw out to you, what are you going to do with the moments that you've been given? Let me pray. Father God, thank you again for your word. Lord, thank you for these books and all that you have taught us and shown us within these pages. Father God, I thank you that your word is truly inexhaustible. Lord, I thank you that as these women go home, as they dig even further, Lord, they will see there's even more to be found. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for constantly and continually showing us things in the word that you have given us. And Lord, even more importantly than showing us, Lord, may your word mold us and make us into your likeness. May we be people who truly represent you on this earth. May we represent you in truth, Father God. May we draw others to you as we do so. I thank you and I praise you for that. And Lord, I thank you for each and every woman who has been a part of this study. Father God, I thank you that you bring to their remembrance things that you have taught them, Father God, on which they need or should act. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen.